0: Turn your attention now to your bulletin or the screen behind me, and you will find today's sermon passage, which is found in the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 19, verses 45 through 48, and also chapter 20, verses 9 through 19. Hear the word of the Lord. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants, and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they could give some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is that that is written, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at the very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them but they feared the people. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen,
1: good morning. Uh, So I should introduce myself. You've heard me talk enough already, but my name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. So good to have so many of you with us this morning. I promise, uh, thank you for being patient with me as I labored through that. I promise I, I won't be as emotional now. Uh, hopefully anyway, My sat down and my son said, listen, what's the deal? You weren't that emotional when you did that with me. <laughs> and I said, I don't know. They, I've always been told it's different with girls. Maybe it is. Who knows? Or maybe it just is a sign of maturity in me that I'm growing. I don't know. But um, we are, we are uh, glad. We're glad that you're here with us this morning. We have been in a series in the Gospel of Luke. We're actually coming to the end of it. Many of you might sigh a sigh of relief ...over that, because we've been uh, looking at this gospel for the better part of a year and a half now. We'll uh, continue in what, what we call the passion narratives, Jesus' journey to the cross through the Lenten season... ...all the way to Good Friday and Easter, and then the road to Emmaus the week after Easter. So Luke, that's what we're going to be doing uh, these next few weeks. And what you find as you begin to get into these passion narratives, but really in the whole of the gospel... ...in Luke's gospel, Jesus' mission is moving forward at a pretty rapid pace... But as it moves forward, it keeps smashing into the walls of religious tradition. So his ministry results in great joy and celebration from people, but there's also tremendous opposition at the same time. And the opposition always comes from the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious establishment. It should not surprise us then that as Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem here in Luke 19 and 20, he walks right into a battle with the Jewish religious establishment. He goes to the temple, verse 45 of chapter 19, And he picks a fight. Now, I know that's not in our kind of categories, but Jesus goes Chuck Norris here on the temple. He he walks in and picks a fight with these people intentionally. But what's interesting about Luke's gospel is, unlike the other gospels, Luke has very little to say about... Him, him overturning the tables in the temple and basically shutting down the temple for the better part of a day. There are only two verses, 45 and 46, that really deal with that. And then he goes right on to describe the hostility that resulted from it, verses 47 and then into chapter 20. So for Luke, the event, unlike the other Gospels, the event is not the important thing. What Luke really wants to talk about is the hostility that's created by it. And that's what we're going to talk about. And so the question is, why why are these men running around Jerusalem, verse forty-seven, plotting how they're going to destroy him? What is the reason for this? And the parable in chapter twenty. The parable is meant to explain this. It's the main subject of the passage, and so it will be the main subject of the sermon this morning. And here's the teaching that is going to be <clears throat> excuse me, for some of us kind of hard to wrestle with, but we need to, because it's all over the scriptures. And it's just this that there is in every one of us, in these people, but in every one of us. There is a natural enmity, an antagonism, a contempt, a hatred for God himself. The Bible says that we, every one of us, whether you're agnostic, whether you're very new to the faith... Whether you are are a long-time Christian, it doesn't matter where you are on the spectrum, it's true to one degree or another of every single one of us that we are, we're not just indifferent to God, you know, or we might say, well, I really, you know, I think I really love God. Well, that's part of God's saving work in you, but in one way or another, intrinsic to every human heart is an enmity and a contempt and a hatred for God. And really there's a deeper problem that Luke's getting into here, and that is that it, there's an irony that we have to deal with, and it's just that it's the religious people that hate him so much. Did you notice that? It's really the religious people that hate him so much, and so one, of the part, one part of the teaching is, is that the more, the more religious a person becomes, the more likely they are to reject Jesus and hate him. It's really ironic, isn't it? That the more religious, we're going to talk about exactly what I mean by that, the more religious somebody comes, the more likely they are to eventually reject him and hate him. These are the religious leaders of the people, specifically the temple authorities as he comes into the temple in chapter 19. But they hate, they hate him. He's God. They hate God. When God shows up, they try to kill him. What's going on here? And so the problem, the problem underneath all of our problems we're being taught here, is this hatred of God, and it affects everything. And, here, and here's the irony, here's, here's the real problem, that religion isn't a solution, it actually is a strategy for enacting our hatred of God. So the work of the gospel is constantly smashing into the walls of religious form and tradition. And, and so there are three things, three things that, create, that creates hostility, and there are three things about this hostility that we want to look at together this morning. The first is, we want, I feel like I have to convince you uh, that this is true, that you are indeed hostile to God. So that's point number one, that we are hostile to God. Secondly, if that's true, then why is it? Why are we Why are we hostile to God? Where's the hostility come from in us? Uh, what, what creates it? And then lastly, how is it that we could find our hostility being overthrown so that we might love and serve him the way that we should? So that we're hostile to him, why it is that we're hostile to him, and how it is that he, by his grace, can overthrow our hostility. Those are our three points. So let's Let's start right here. Let me first try to show you from the text and from the whole Bible that whether you're irreligious or religious, longtime Christian or new to the faith, whatever it might be, or even agnostic, there is an, in your heart a natural hostility and hatred of God. And unless you deal with it, until you deal with it, you will never be happy. You'll never be content. It will be the source of all kinds of trouble for you. It will haunt you spiritually. It will, it will, um, it will affect how you feel internally. It will degrade your joy and peace. In your emotional life, it will cause trouble in your relationships is the source of all of our ills. And so let's start with the text here in Luke 19 and 21st. And what you see here is that in these two chapters, Luke highlights five. Now, we didn't print them all for you, but five separate confrontations between Jesus and the religious leaders. And the parable that is set in the middle of chapter 20, the parable of the wicked tenants, is meant to illustrate uh, illustrate this this. This antagonism, this hostility, and to also explain it. So these tenants here, they're hostile to their owner. That's, that's what the parable teaches. They abuse. He sends messengers. They abuse the messengers he sends. They, they kill the heir eventually. There's such explosive violence on the part of these men because they hate their master. And it's illustrating a biblical principle. Romans 5.10 says that we, all of us, every single one of us, All of us in the room are by nature enemies of God. We have declared ourselves at war with him. There is no spiritual Switzerland. You cannot, there's no neutrality, and we have declared ourselves not on his side, but against him. We are enemies of God. Romans 8, 7 goes on to say that the mind that is set on the flesh, in other words, the natural mind, the natural state of of humanity, apart from a a work of God's grace in, in our lives, the natural mind is set on the flesh and it's hostile to God. And then of course in Colossians 1 that we read a minute ago, we we're told that once before, before our salvation, before the work of God's grace in Christ towards us, we were alienated. That means the relationship has been, been messed up. There's, there's, there's disrepair in the relationship, but it's even more than that. We're alienated, but we're also hostile. There's hatred, there's anger, there's, there's deep hostility in us towards our maker. So that's the biblical principle. Now what I did was is I went to a couple of my favorite theologians to, to have them explain to us in their own words what, what the Bible's teaching here about this hostility. So John Murray, the old Princeton theologian, he said the essence of sin is to be against God. It is the contradiction of God. Now listen to this. He says the disposition underlying all activity is one of opposition to and hatred of God. And here's the phrase that just leveled me. He said, it is morally and psychologically impossible to have any disposition of obedience towards God in the natural state. Naturally, every single one of us, it is impossible, morally and psychologically impossible, to have any disposition of obedience towards him. Matthew Henry, the great Bible commentator, he said, "It is. It is not only the alienation of the soul from God that the Scripture is talking about, but it is the opposition of the soul against God. It rebels against His authority. It thwarts His design. It opposes His interests. It spits in His face. It spurns His love." Now, those are kind of dense, you know, theological passages. So let me give you an illustration. Um, we have four children in our house. Abby, who was received this morning, is our our third, our oldest daughter. We have a younger daughter, too, and uh, when when she was born, we were cruising right along, and then she came along, and before we left the hospital, Ashley looked at me and said, okay, this one's different. Now, moms, I don't know how y'all know that, but she did. In the first hours of her life, she knew this, okay, this one's and Sarah came with this, this strange condition. Her head did not, you know, before children can talk, you try to, you know, you communicate with them and you try to get them to respond to you with kind of the, you know, they can't say yes, so you want them to nod their head. And we even did sign language, like, but, you know, and they do this a lot too. Sarah came with this weird condition where her head was literally, it, it was impossible for her head to swivel in this direction. It was, was, I mean, it really was this funny thing. It got to be so funny because, you know, because then then it became personal. We were like, we're going to get her to nod her head yes in obedience to something we do. And it literally, it was almost like it pained her to do this. So I remember one night in particular, we're at the dinner table, and it's like, you're not getting up until you nod your head yes to whatever we're trying to do. And it was, and she, I mean, I'm not kidding. I'm not exaggerating. It really was this kind of... You know, and her head became jelly on the way down. I mean, she, she just literally, you know, literally, I mean, it's literally, there was this obstinance, she literally couldn't do it. And that, that is a picture, it's a picture of the human heart. in it's opposition, and it's unwillingness to bend itself to the will of its maker. Side to side, no problem. She had this one down. And so do we. But this one, it's a lot harder. And so the first step towards faith is to be honest about this. And to know that sin is not a violation of this or that rule. Sin, in the words of one commentator, is an attitude, I love this, is an attitude of resentment towards the crown claims of Christ over your life. Sin, in its essence, is not just breaking a rule. It's an attitude of resentment toward the crown claims of Christ over your life. Sin isn't, uh, you know, there's a rule and you break the rule. It's deeper than that. Sin is hating the one who makes the rules. Sin is a posture of the heart before it's an act of the will. It's declaring war on your maker and being set against any obedience he would call you to. And I wonder, do you know that this is your problem? Do you know? I mean, you might say, I, listen, I don't hate God. I don't even know if I believe that, that God exists. If that's true, then, you know, you've got a ways to go. But whether you're agnostic or a long-time Christian, at the core of your life, there's a hostility towards God. George Whitfield said, the great... Colonial preacher in America, he said, Have you ever noticed that when we come near animals, they growl at us, they bark at us, the birds screech at us and fly away? He said, Do you know why? Because they know we have a quarrel with their master. The animals know. I wonder if you do. And you see, becoming a Christian doesn't mean you just start doing the right things. I wish it was that simple. The problem is, is if there's an enmity and a hatred in our hearts towards God, you can do the right things and still hate Him. In fact, you can do the right things because you hate Him. Romans 8, 7, the mind is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So sin is something deeper than just breaking the rules. It's being so inclined towards hatred to Him in your heart that it is morally and psychologically impossible to obey Him, even when you're trying to obey Him. He has to do something in your life. So becoming a Christian isn't just obedience. It's loving obedience. It's having your heart overthrown by the love of God so that you love him in return. It's loving obedience because you love the one you're you're, you're obeying. So the psalmist sings, how I love your law. It is my meditation day and night. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. That's, That's a heart that's been overthrown. We're all hostile to God, and to the degree that you remain hostile to him, it will be morally and emotionally and psychologically impossible for you to obey him. And so that's the problem we're trying to solve. You know, that's the problem we're trying to solve in our lives. So where does all this hostility come from? We have to know this in order to really kind of dig into our own hearts in this. And the parable helps answer this question as well, doesn't it? Look there in verse 9 and below. The men in the story are tenant farmers, and there's a master. The land they are working doesn't belong to them. It belongs to the owner. It belongs to the master. But they want it for themselves. This is the tension. And this is why they hate him. Look at verse 14. Look at what they say when they see the owner's son. They say, oh, here's the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. And so what we're, what we're taught here is that our hostility uh, is a hatred of God's authority. That underneath all of the inhumanity that we exhibit to each other and all of our complaining about how unhappy we are with the way life is going, our self-pity in us, underneath all of that is an anger at the idea that we're not in charge, I'm not in charge, I'm not in control. Listen, I know what's best for me, but there's somebody out there that won't let me be in charge and do what's best for me and I hate it. I hate it. I resent him for it. And you do too. If you want any, the evidence of this is plain. The one time in history, you know, when God made himself physically vulnerable by coming into the world, he was almost immediately jumped, kicked, beaten, tortured, and killed. If we could get our hands on him, that is what we would do with him too. And this creates an internal conflict in our hearts because we live, here's the place where we live. We live, every one of us, we live in the illusion of independence and self-sufficiency, whereas our real condition is dependence and contingency. And it's that conflict that creates all the anger. We don't, want to, we don't want to see that. We don't want to admit it. We deny, we deny, we deny, and it boils over into anger. So on the one hand, we, we know we're tenants. We know it. We know we're tenants. But on the other hand, we hate that we're tenants. We want to be the owner. We, we know we owe the owner everything. The owner comes and he's wanting, he's wanting the produce from the land that is his by right. We, we know there's an owner and that we, we owe him <clears throat> Excuse me, everything, but we don't want to. We want to do it ourselves. We want to take credit for things in our lives. We don't want to admit We don't want to admit that all of life is gift. And see, the problem with the men in the parable is that they are tenants who begin to act like owners, isn't that? Or who aspire to be owners. Isn't that the teaching? It's the nature of the human heart to think like this, that we're all tenants Who aspire to be owners. We want to act like owners. And it's the source of all of our problems. It's the reason for all of our anxiety and depression and relational conflict and spiritual confusion and and dullness because this is the essence of sin. And here's the way I would put it to you We, we give ourselves titles with capital letters. That's what we like to do. We give ourselves titles with capital letters. So the truth is, I'm not, I'm a shepherd. It's my job, I'm a shepherd. But I'm not the Shepherd, capital S. Right? It's appropriate for you to say amen there. That's good news to you. I am not the Shepherd. You are God's flock. Not mine. That's good news too. And I am to shepherd the flock as if it was his, not mine. Now, I'm a husband. But the weird thing is, I'm, I'm a husband to my wife, but I'm not the husband capital H. I'm a parent. I'm a, I'm a father, but I'm not the father, capital F. My kids are on loan to me. They belong to him. They belong to him. I mean, I own I own my house. Well, I mean, the bank actually owns my house, but, you know, <laughs> that's splitting hairs. <laughs> you know, I own my cars. I really do own those. I own, I own certain things, but I don't own my life. I'm not the owner, capital O. See, we give ourselves titles and we capitalize them because we want to be the ones calling the shots. We want to be the ones. It's, it's dependent. You know, we live in this weird cross-pressure between I want to be able to do it by myself, but I know I can't. One of my favorite things, uh, my, my youngest son, Isaac, when he was very little, he's always been a little self-sufficient. I remember the day he, we heard him call out from his bedroom, Mommy, come and help me do this all by myself. It was like this thing. Oh, that's me. I want to do it all by myself, but I know I can't do it by myself, and that's why I'm so angry and annoyed. Instead, you should look at your life and all that it consists of, your property, your material possessions, and education and experience and gifts and talents and creativity and your influence, and you have all this stuff, but it's not yours. It belongs to somebody else. So, um, Malcolm Gladwell, who I really love to, I enjoy reading his books, but he wrote a book called uh, Outliers in which he he tried to diagnose uh, what really accounts for some people being successful and and others not being successful because, you know, we all believe it really is, you know, it's hard work and it's determination and it's practice and it's my energy and my talent and my gifts and all this stuff that really account for my life being the way that it is for all the, I can can credit all of that stuff for all of the good that's coming to my life and Gladwell wrote the book to say, well, I really don't think it works that way. And here are his words. He says, people don't rise from nothing. We do owe something to parentage and patronage. But in, but in fact, people who do rise are invariably the beneficiaries of hidden advantages and extraordinary opportunities and cultural legacies that allow them to learn and work hard and make sense of the, wor- the way the world works. In the, way, in the ways that, that they benefit that others do not. It makes a difference, he says, where and when we grew up, the culture we belong to, and the legacies passed down by our forebears, shapes the patterns of our achievement in ways we cannot begin to imagine. He says it's not enough to ask what successful people are like. In other words, it's only by asking where they're from that we can unravel the logic behind who succeeds and who doesn't. And in the book, he, he goes through a study that was really fascinating. In Canada, the big thing in Canada is, um, is, is hockey youth hockey. Here, it's probably baseball. You know, you go to the ballpark, go with Maddie to the ballpark sometime. Every, every father of every four-year-old there is convinced that his son will play Major League Baseball sometime in their future, which is why they yell and they scream and they do all the things that they do, and then Maddie has to come in and, and whip them for being stupid. Right? Because it really is. Uh, and, but the frenzy here is nothing compared to the frenzy that comes with playing youth hockey in, um, in Canada. And, and this study was done, and they tried to say, okay, what is it really that accounts for, you know, who makes it to the pros and who doesn't? And basically, the study said there's one thing, uh, the most important thing that is the determining factor of whether or not a four-year-old kid will make it to become a professional athlete is what month of the year he was born in. And the reason is, is because the cutoff day in the, hockey, in the youth hockey leagues is January 1, and so if you were born on January 2nd, guess what? You're the biggest four-year-old on the team. Which means you have 364 days head start on everybody else, which means you're probably the strongest and the fastest, which means you'll get the best coaching, which means you'll be put in the best spot on the team, which means you'll get better quicker than everybody else, which means, and then it just kind kind of builds from there. So it's maybe not that we work hard and that we're talented. Maybe it's just that we're fortunate enough to have a January 2nd birthday that accounts for a lot of the things in our lives. We like to think that we're in control of things, but the truth is that all of life is gift. That's what McLaughlin saying. Sure, there's hard work and sacrifice, but the scripture says, here's what the scripture says, 1 Corinthians 4, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? I hate that. I can't take credit for anything, Paul says, which means my life isn't up to me. And any time that reality, reality begins to break in, that's where my anger comes from. Now, a couple of applications before we move on to the third point. We need to, we need to wrap up here. Application number one as we think about these things, uh, just, just, don't kill the messenger. Don't kill the messenger. See, the owner sends messengers. Do you see this to the tenants? And, and, and look how they treat them. They, it escalates. They, they first kind of throw the guy out. The next one they beat up. The third one, they they really, really uh, abuse and and mess up pretty bad. And this is how Israel treated the prophets that God sent to them throughout the centuries. So something I've noticed over the years is a lot of the time when I find myself mad at people in my life, if I dug a little bit underneath that, I would find that I'm not really mad at those people. I'm really mad at God. They're just a convenient, you know, they're right there in front of me. So these people are actually gifts from God. Gifts from God. They're messengers God uses, sometimes through their own brokenness and sin to remind us that we're not owners. And so when when in a relationship with somebody else, what they do something that reminds me that I'm not an owner, what they're, they're shattering the illusion of independence and self-sufficiency. So this is, in case you can't apply this, this is the coach of the t-ball team that won't let your awesome four-year-old play shortstop and play the, instead of playing the outfield. And they're, they're, they're ruining his chance to become a major league baseball player one day. This is the teacher who treats my... Daughter unfairly in class, this is teenagers, this is the parent who says no to you when you want to do something that high, is highly likely you'll kill yourself doing. When it feels like, you know, when it feels like we're not in control, when, when our will can't have its way, and it feels like it's somebody else's fault, somebody's blocking our plans, a lot of times we direct our anger at them, but we're doing we're directing it in the wrong place. The truth is we're not mad at them. Their tenants too. Remember, their tenants too. Their tenants too. You're not in control. They're not in control either. But there is one who really is in control. And so if you're going to be mad, be mad at him. He can handle it. He can deal with that. You're mad because you can't do it on your own, and that means you have to trust him. That's what our hearts don't want to do. But then the second thing, don't kill the messenger, but just another application. The second thing we learn, and we've got to just blow by this and move on, but religion is useless. Religion is useless. The tenants in the parable are the religious leaders, remember. They're the temple authorities. And so religion, we're taught here, is a mask to hide our anger toward God. Sometimes what we do with our anger is we get religious. And in that sense, religion for many people is a strategy for keeping control of your life. It's a strategy for avoiding losing control. And therefore, religion is a strategy for controlling God. I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to follow all the rules. And then, and then when I ask God to do something for me, he's obligated to do it. it. Religion hates the idea that God is the one who's really in control and that all of life is grace. And that we are held up every second by sheer mercy. But that is the truth of our lives. And so lastly then, how can we, if this is true, if there really is this hostility in us. And if that's the reason for it, then how can we have this natural hostility overthrown And here's the answer the text gives us. You have to be awed by the gift of the son. You have to come to terms with the fact that there's an owner, but he is generous and kind and you can trust him. See, this abusing of his servants here is an insult to the owner of the vineyard. And he would have been expected, according to cultural convention, to deal with the men who did this... His honor's at stake. He would be expected to contact the authorities who, at his request, would have sent an armed, a heavily armed company of trained men to storm the vineyard, arrest the men responsible, bring them to justice. It would not only have been within his rights to do this, but in fact, it would have been what he was expected by everybody in his life to do. But look here, verse 13. How does the owner of, Jesus's, in the, of the vineyard in Jesus' story respond? Then the owner of the vineyard, verse 13, said, what shall I do? And here we can imagine a painful pause as the owner contemplates how to handle this terrible offense. Everybody who, read, who, who listened or heard this or reads this expects anger. But look, look, it's something much different, isn't it? Verse 14, I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. Now this is a surprise. This owner, in response to such hostility from these people who owe him everything he's asked of them, He sends his beloved son alone and unarmed. I mean, such grace. The owner should have responded with anger and justice. Instead, he sent his son, his beloved son, and he hoped. Do you hear hear the hope in his words? Maybe they'll listen to him. Maybe they'll respect him. Maybe I can finally win their hearts if they see in this gift of my son my great heart for them. It's silly, isn't it? Such is the grace of God towards the rebel cause of fallen humanity. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. True story confirmed by American intelligence officers. In the 80s, King Hussein of Jordan was informed by his secret police that a group of 75 Jordanian officers were at that very moment meeting in a nearby barracks plotting a military overthrow of his kingdom. The security officers uh, were requesting permission to raid the barracks and arrest the conspirators. Instead, The king requested a helicopter. He flew to where the meeting was being held, and as he left the helicopter, he told the pilot, if you hear gunshots, fly away immediately without me. Unarmed, without guards, alone, he walked down two flights of stairs and entered the room where the meeting was going on. He spoke to those conspiring against him, their king, gentlemen, it has come to my attention that you are meeting here to plan to overthrow my government. If you do this, it will mean civil war. Tens of thousands of innocent people will die. There is no need for that. Here I am. Kill me right now and proceed. That way, only one man need die. And after a moment of stunned silence, the rebels, as one, rushed forward to kiss his hands and pledge their loyalty to him for life. See, this parable is Jesus' autobiography. The three servants are the prophets sent by God before him, and he is the king who has chosen instead of anger to make himself vulnerable out of love in the hope that we would see his incredible generosity in kindness and nobility and be awed by it and in awe of him to lay down our hostility and rebellion and to trust his heart. See that word respect there in verse 14? That they would respect him means that you feel shame, that you come to see how wrong you've been and how inappropriate your stance towards such a great and loving God truly is uh, and you would change. Look again at the vineyard's, vineyard owner, owner's words, what shall I do? Given our hostility and rebellion, God had a choice, and he chose generosity and risk out of love for you and me. He was not obligated to do this. It is his glory, and now we have a choice. What shall we do? The temple leadership seized Jesus, saying, this is the heir. Let's kill him so the inheritance may be ours. They did this to maintain their control and their position. And so the text says, verse 16, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And in fact, This happened 40 years later at 70 AD when Rome completely overthrew the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. But the question remains for us, and this is where we need to end, what will we do? What will we do? And just to conclude, I want you to look at this image uh, beginning in verse, excuse me, in verse 17, this image of the cornerstone. Jesus changes images down here at the end of the passage. This son who is killed becomes the stone that is rejected that ultimately becomes the cornerstone. And the Hebrew word for for son is ben. The word for stone is eben. And so in the Hebrew, it literally reads, the ben who was killed becomes the eben that was laid aside that has become the cornerstone upon which eternal life is built. David Wyndham says it's a picture of resurrection, that the death of Jesus at the hands of the Jewish religious leaders is not the end of the story. He is risen and he has become the cornerstone upon which God's eternal kingdom is being built. In the ancient world, the cornerstone was the beginning of the foundation upon which the building was being was built. The cornerstone was set first and every other stone was cut to, to, to fit with it, chiseled to fit with it. And for the sake of time, let me get right to the point. Here it is. If you build your life, your spiritual resume... On the record of your own accomplishments, you're rejecting the cornerstone. And here's what the scripture teaches. You won't be able to bear the weight of the demands of God's law. It will crush you. God's holiness will crush you. And if you insist on trying to get to heaven on the basis of your good works, you're no different than the tenants who seized the son to kill him. And there will be judgment that comes. But but if you are awed by God's grace and generosity to you in Christ Jesus, and if you build your life on him... If what Jesus has done for you is the foundation for everything else, and if he bears the weight of the law's demands in your life, and you trust in him, then you get the kingdom of God. God will build you into part of the beautiful thing that he is building. In Ephesians 2.16, the Apostle Paul begins to talk about the cross of Christ, and he says that in his death, Jesus has made peace. and and has reconciled us to God. And here it is, listen. He has made peace, reconciling us to God, Ephesians 2.16, thereby killing the hostility. God's gift of the Son as a token of peace and the Son's reconciling work by going to the cross for our sins is the key to overcoming our, our hostility. He did not come to punish us for our sins as we deserved. He came to die for them. Do you see it? Can you believe such grace and generosity really exists? Do you see in the Father's gift, the owner's gift of his son, in the Father's gift of his son to you to be beaten and tortured and abused, do you see in his magnanimous generosity and love, do you see just how much he loves you, just how much he hopes for you, just how much he longs for you to turn away from your anger and hostility and to trust him? You see, when you see Jesus dying on the cross for you because he loves you, it's his death becomes the death of your hostility. That's the only way. And that's what this table reminds us of. And so as we come to it, let's pray. So Lord Jesus, as we wrap our, our, our service up this morning, uh, thank you that's been so full of your work. We can feel your spirit presence moving and working among us. And so we pray now as we come and gather around this table that you would meet with us, continue to overthrow our unbelief and our fear and our, our natural enmity and hatred towards you subdue our hearts by your love and strengthen us toward the work that you, the obedience that you've called us to do, where it is emotionally and psychologically impossible for us to obey you. Would you, so, would you cause us to be so captivated by your great love for us that we find in ourselves a new motivation and energy for the obedience that you've called us to, that you might be glorified in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So in whatever whatever sadness that you might be leaving to face, whatever... Hardship, whatever struggle, uh, the thing that is really the problem is the way we are, the way we kick against that, the way we fight against God's working in our lives. But what that song says, the one you're fighting against is the one who died for you. That makes no rational sense. And so, receive the words of this benediction and rest yourself under His care in his protection, in his provision, and his power. That's what these words mean because that, that is the way to go and find all the strength and the grace that you need uh, to overcome whatever obstacle he puts in your way or what is put in your way, uh, whatever cross you may call, be called to carry. Receive these words and may they, may they sit upon your soul this week as you go about the work he's called you to. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.